Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. Episode of the Forgot My Dice podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Edwards, and with me, of course, the screams you can't hear to my dark, unknowable void of space. Mr. Robert Lundgren, how you doing? Hello, hello. I am doing very, very, very good. How are you, Jonathan? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's a little later than normal uh, because of some family stuff, so I'm uh, definitely feeling it a little bit. How about you? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. So you have said to me out loud before we recorded that you do not want to get hung up on things and you want to, quote, power through this. And I want to make a prediction. I will uh, an early prediction for the 2020s. Whenever you say that out loud, you are the one that gets sidetracked more often than not. And I try to power through. I'm tired and I'm not thinking about keeping things on track. (laughs) (laughs) So my prediction is this will go long. Well, you know what they say, Robert, generally after we say things like thanks to all of our patrons over at Patreon, because you guys do a wonderful job of helping us keep the lights on. We generally will say, uh, it's uh, good advice to not uh, cry over the spilled milk. You know what I mean? (laughs) I don't know where you were going with that, but I like it. Yes, today, February 11th, is National Don't Cry Over Spilled Milk Day. It comes from the proverb, no weeping for shed milk, uh, referenced by James Howell in 1659. It's evolved over time. But today is the day where you go looking on the bright side and carry that with you every day thereafter. Don't worry. Don't stress. Don't cry over spilled milk. Good advice. Good advice. That was uh, very moving. Mm, mm. I, I, uh-huh. yeah. mm-hmm. Do you have another pun? I don't. I don't have anything. I'm terrible at puns. Uh, I'm sure I can find something. Just keep, just keep them coming, man. Because you want to get this out quickly and don't want to get off topic. So yeah. give me all your cow Orlando, and milk. By the way, uh, oh, a chance to see Star Wars World, which was amazing. Speaking of going off topic, go ahead. Yes, yes, you're on assignment in Orlando. I don't know if you listened to the last episode. We just said you're on assignment. <laughs> Which is fair. Anyway, I was in Orlando. Star Wars World is amazing. If you are a Star Wars geek of any way, shape, or form, you owe it to yourself to go there. It is mind-bogglingly good. There you go. See? See? On assignment. Part of the legitimate press. Go into the Star Wars land. Oh, I was having a, a discussion while I was there. You know how Mace died, right? Yes. Yeah. He went out the window. Waka, waka, waka. <laughs> <laughs> moving right along it is of course time for our off the shelf segment our off the shelf segment is of course where we take everything that we have gotten off of our shelves and put onto our table and share it with you our lovely lovely listeners and this week is a very very special off the shelf segment because uh one of my favorite people died while we were gone actually while we were producing last episode terry jones and i have gone on a terry jones bender so much. I just I have been taking that and shoving that into my heart because it is There's one truly unfortunate. Been a little harder to stomach than than a lot of them. I mean, you you and I are of that age where a lot of our heroes are just starting to expire, unfortunately. And th- these are the people that we grew up with, and uh, 
some are a little easier to take than others. This I'm putting this of this one up there with uh, Bowie in terms of of how much it personally affected me. It it hit me pretty hard because uh, yeah, you know, I've been talking about how I've been running that D and D game, and that D and D game was largely inspired by a TV series he did. So I've been like watching the heck out of it lately, just looking for D and D ideas. You know? Yeah. It sucked. Like I, I got I got. Yeah, I, I got more emotional than I thought I would over it because I, you know, just that guy's been like a part of my life the last couple of months, actually, as I've been prepping for this D&D game. And yeah, it's just it's it's been sad. I've got something quite similar uh, as well. I when I was growing up, uh, especially in high school, I was one of the theater geeks. And of course, Monty Python is a humongous component of being a theater geek when you're younger. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a big component about being a D&D geek in that in that time frame. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of the, the, the same thing. So, yeah, it, it, it hit me hard. That was a large chunk of my high school years, you know, and like reading about the dude's career, you know, Just both massive, in Python man. and and out of it. Yeah, like it's yeah. so in video games, I like playing support classes typically sometimes i don't but you know things where i i kind of boister up everybody else and that seemed to be terry's job like he like he always dressed up as old ladies in that show because nobody else wanted to and he did a lot of the stuff that nobody else really wanted to do because he was trying to you know just keep everything floating and i i you know like i i just felt it it got me i admire anybody willing to give themselves to comedy like that so anyway i i have a lot of terry jones in my in my uh in my list of things so where do you want to get started bud uh, most of it is, I, I've been watching a lot of TV, the non-Python TV that he did. So we, why don't we start there? Okay. While I was in Orlando, I was with some good friends and we realized that some of them had not watched the beauty, the magnificence, the American classic Iron Eagle. So I bestowed that gift upon them. Nice. I haven't seen that movie in years. I should watch it. Do, do you, if, you, if you really ever want to understand just how different America is from other countries, sit down with a couple of German folks and watch a movie like Iron Eagle with them and then look over halfway through the movie and ask them what they think. It is. <laughs> it, I, I had a couple of friends from Germany in, in town and they just I mean, there was a lot of explanation. A lot of explanation. The last time I watched that movie, I was sitting in the YMCA in Tustin at uh, wow. Junior High Camp. Wow. It, I actually yeah. know where that is because I used to live not too far from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one off the freeway? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. yep, yep, yep. By I was the Vons. In, by the Vons. Yes, yes. I don't think it's the Vons anymore, but yeah. It's yeah. not. It's not. But it, there was a running joke on one of the uh, San Diego radio stations growing up where you could just say, by the Vons, and everybody understood. <laughs> Because there was a Vons on every corner. Vons, for those of you not from the Southern California uh, area in the 90s and early 2000s, was a local grocery store chain. That was the 24-hour Vons. I used to go there after work all the time. Yeah, it moved by the time I needed to have a 24-hour Vons. Because I used to go to one close to it, but there was a bigger one. Yeah, the newer <laughs> one. Well, it was newer then, now it's old. Yes, true. True that. Just like this spur of conversation, moving right back. <laughs> Keeping it... Yeah, you're keeping it. You're keeping it nice and uh, wrangling it. You know, yeah, you're wrangling, wrangling it. it. Not no no sidetrack. No sidetrack. No side yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Stop wandering, asshole. Okay, you're doing it on purpose now. I'm not doing it on purpose. <laughs> I have to bleep you now. All right. So I, I watched Iron Eagle. What did you watch? Oh my god, it's a target now. That's nuts. Anyway, um. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm the one wandering. 
Uh, okay, okay. We'll tell you what. I'm, we're gonna go. We're gonna go with the non Terry Jones stuff, so we can do all the Terry Jones stuff in one go uh, to to truly pay tribute. Uh, Star Trek Picard hit. Oh Don't my! Tell me a thing. Forking shirt balls, Jonathan. You need to watch that show. Like it's worth getting a subscription for two, three months because there's gonna be ten episodes. So yeah, what you need to do is you pluck. Picard and, and TNG stuff, you know, data, all that stuff. You pluck all of those characters, right? You flash forward 20 years and then you do a really kind of intense, heartfelt, like drama. And that is Star Trek Picard. It's oddly dark, but it, it's, it's got a lot of gravitas because it's pulling so much of like, you know, your past. And, uh, it's really doing something interesting with nostalgia because, you know, it's almost like the next generation show is like Picard's nostalgia for how the past was. And it might not be the reality of it. It's weird, but it's real, real good. Jonathan, <laughs> it's so, uh, it's nice. So good. Star Trek's getting good again. Cause there was a time. Hey, discovery season two. I enjoyed, I legitimately I know, enjoyed that's what I'm saying. There was a time when everybody was kind of down on Star Trek and now it seems to have returned. Yeah. Oh dude. Picard is, is it's heavy and it's, it's real good. And, and it can only work because of the old show in a weird way, because it, it, you know, it brings that weight forward and it brings like, you know, looking into the past and, and, you know, wanting to do things better or things differently and, and romanticizing the past. And I know there's been people who've been picking on it because this isn't much of a spoiler because they talk about this. Star Trek has always been an allegory about life, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very much so. You can pretty much get a read on current uh, political um, situations just by watching any of the movies for the time period. Exactly. The Klingons were Russia. The you know Romulans were China. I think that was their allegory. I'm not sure where the Cardassians fell into that. In this modern era, where we have a rise of, shall we say... Cardassians were kind of like North Korea. In this modern age, where we're having a rise in America of isolationism and uh, you know paranoia of the other... I've seen people pick on this show a little bit because Starfleet is kind of not Starfleet right now because they they're picking up those traits of being mm. a, little, a little isolationist and a little whatever. But the the writers the writers have come on and said like you know it, this is sci-fi it's supposed to be whatever and right now this is what's going on. That's fair, and it's not just the U.S. either. You know. Yeah, yeah, and it's like we can understand that if you don't li- you don't like this out of your Starfleet, but if it's going to be an allegory about current political stuff, which is what Starfleet, which is what Trek has always been good at, we need to go there. So, and and they're going there well. It's 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 real. It's real good. So I That's highly recommend it. Highly interesting. It just makes me want to watch it more. Jo- Jonathan is like whatever you are doing. Do- don't even. It, you know what? If we have to cancel the Bond segment so you can watch that, just do it. I, I will talk about Bond. I will keep it up. I will keep the flame alive. <laughs> I will get to it. I will get to it. And then to because you you have to balance. You have to have a yin to your yang. I went and watched uh, Godzilla two thousand, aka Godzilla Millennium. That is good stuff right there. That is uh, that is a dumpster fire of a movie. <laughs> like I, I was watching it and I, it was it, it is exactly what you should not do with a Godzilla movie, because I've said it before and I'll say it again. Godzilla movies do not hinge on their monster action. They hinge on how much you give a crap about the human characters. And I was no, really yeah, that's that's always been the case. That's why the very first Godzilla movie you don't really see a ton of Godzilla. Right, right. And this movie, it was like doing really good up until the third act. And then it all sort of like fell apart. And I realized something when I was watching it, making a good Godzilla movie is about as just as difficult about as making a good Superman movie because Godzilla and Superman are like effectively the same thing. They're gods. They're forces of nature, you know, like 
just having something that can challenge them isn't necessarily, you know, that doesn't make good whatever because it's just a fight. That was, that was my favorite part about the new movies, which I know have met some mixed reception, but they got that aspect of it right because there's moments where Godzilla squishes stuff and he doesn't even look down because why would he? It's it's, mm-hmm. it's like flattening a blade of grass to us. Um, and that's why the most recent Godzilla movie kind of failed because the humans in that were being weird and strange <laughs> and not making sense. Yeah, that whole thing. But yeah, but it's the same thing with Superman. Like Superman f- doing super heroic action like like that's easy and it's not interesting like superman actually trying to like grip with stuff is is what's interesting and say what you will about man of steel at least they tried to do that a little bit yeah my issue with man of steel is they pulled the punch well and they missed the theme of of what makes superman superman i think i I don't think they quite got what they were setting up could have paid off to be something really dramatically interesting because they they had the the juxtaposition of his earth father and his true father. And they were directly in opposition of one each other. And if they had continued to chase that down, that could have been something really neat, but Mm -hmm. they pulled the punch in my opinion. Agreed. So anyway, yes, that was my, uh, that was my non Terry Jones viewing experiences. So uh, you don't have anything else, right? I do. I do. I do too. Had a non Terry Jones viewing experience. I watched ad Astra. Oh, yeah, you were telling me about that. That is my favorite film genre, the overly long, pretentious sci-fi movie. How how was it? And in that respect, you're going to love it. (laughs) And I don't say that with irony. It is a throwback in every way, shape, and form to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yep, yep, yep. And I say that with great love and affection for that movie. I I really enjoyed Ad Astra. It it asks some interesting questions. Uh, There's a lot of analysis on you know, determinism mm-hmm. and also on how much you owe your parents and, and how much they are within you and struggling with, with the loss of one. And it's, I don't know, it's really, it, it was interesting. It was a lot more than I expected. You know, what? I will tell you, uh, Sophia decided to sit down and watch it with it with us. And I've heard about the baboon sequence. Was that? No, was no. Yeah. We had to cover her eyes for that. We covered her eyes, but <laughs> good. There was, there's the part in the beginning that they showed in the trailer where he falls off of the space tower. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously he's able to parachute in and everything. So he falls off and later on he's wearing a suit again and he's outside and and he crawls back inside the uh, the spacecraft. And she goes, "Woo! I thought he was going to fall again. And we just don't want that for him. <laughs> oh, my God. Jessica and I were dying. Nice. Nice. All right. I put on hold at the local library. So I would like to discuss that film in a little more detail. So once you watch it, we will break the spoilers. Okay. I, uh, I am 226th on 42 copies. All right. Anything else from a movie TV perspective? Just, just Terry Jones stuff. So here we go. I should have that in about three weeks, by the way. Okay. So I've talked about it before, but I'll, I'll plug it again. Terry Jones, medieval lives. I'm pretty much basing my D and D campaign off of, uh, ideas spawned from it. It's excellent. This is a common theme in the uh, historical work that Terry Jones did. He really liked focusing on uh, the little people of history, shall we say, because like, you know, when you watch things about a lot of stuff, you get, you know, the, the movers and shakers that people wrote about. But he really likes trying to dig into what life was like for average working Joes and uh, medieval lives. 
it, it does have a king episode, but it's it's nine episodes and they have, you know, peasants, minstrels, philosophers, monks. Like he, he kind of covers a very wide spectrum. And he makes the point that a lot of people think that the Middle Ages or medieval times or whatever you want to call it was kind of this weird middle period where nothing much happened. But actually, you know, the world then was very, very dynamic and changing from, you know, the Black Death to you know, just changes with, you know, the Normans coming in and changing sort of the rules around a couple times. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's a good show. There's a lot to mine for if you want to do kind of some interesting takes on, you know, standard fantasy cliches, because yeah, it turns out we don't know a lot about medieval times. There's a lot of like, uh, tropes around it, but those tropes aren't exactly true. I mean, they're all true at some point, but there was a lot more going on in the, in the space. On that note, I watched the hidden history of Egypt, which is another documentary he did. Based on your recommendation, and I am loving it. Yeah, it's real good. And again, it focuses on, you know, just little guys. He spends a lot of time, uh, there's like a, I think he's like a carver or something that he tries to figure out how the dude lived. And they like know how he lived because they found his house. Like they named this guy and it's like, this is actually where he lived 3,000 years ago. And uh, it was interesting because they go into his house and they probably filmed it this way, but they go into his house and then they go into a house in the area in the modern day and it's built very similarly. And I'm really sure that they shot it in a way to make it like, you know, like they redid shots to make them from the same angles, you know, of, of the modern house versus the, you know, the ruins. But it was a really interesting point about, you know, like one of the things is like when you live out in Egypt, like a lot of people sleep on their roofs because it's cooler, you know, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, that would make sense. It's like, what if it rains on you? It's like, ah, it's the Egyptian desert. It ain't going to rain on you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it, it's it's a really, really good documentary. And it's, uh, you know, and, and what's nice about it is, you know, he, he kind of keeps it light because, you know, it's Terry Jones. He's does silliness every so often. And uh, yeah. <laughs> On that same vein, he did one, which I forgot to write down, called The Hidden History of Rome, which is very similar. He makes up a dude named Marcus, who's a working Joe who makes shoes, and he kind of tries to piece together what a working Joe who made shoes uh, would would be doing. And they spend a lot of time in Pompeii because, you know, they actually have places you can go visit in Pompeii. Um, but they, they do spend some time talking about actual factual Rome. And, uh, yeah, really, it was just, again, really interesting, just... Interesting hearing about how the little people ate and behaved and you found out fun things like a lot of the Roman poor diet was made up of various breads, cabbage, chickpeas, and garlic. Hmm. Good times. Perhaps things that we have seen in Mediterranean cuisine. Yes, yes. Real quick, when you said actual factual, all I could think of was um, cannibal Shia LaBeouf. Actual factual. That's where I stole the phrase from. (laughs) Actual factual. I'm with you. Yeah, you're, you're picking up what I'm putting down. Okay. All right. Well, so continuing on, uh, yeah, the surprising right history along, let's of talk about uh, get your RPG out of the way. No, no, I'm still on Terry Jones. Oh. I got more. So moving on, uh, he did one called the surprising history of sex and love, which is uh, probably not for the kiddos. It was produced for the Discovery Channel to go up against the Super Bowl because the Discovery Channel always puts the sexy time documentaries up against the Super Bowl. But basically the same thing, like common people, how they dealt with sex and love throughout history. Uh, it's kind of more risque and kind of there to be sort of like, ooh, it's the thing I'm watching against the Super Bowl. But it was still fun. Uh, and then and then the dark horse, the black sheep of the family, he did a series on the Crusades. And there is not a really good way you can liven up the Crusades. It was just darkness all around. Yeah, that's not <laughs> 
no oh my god like at, at like i was watching it because i was like yeah the kids can watch it and like uh, about half not even halfway through like 15 minutes and i'm like yeah no the kids can't watch this this is not appropriate for children because yeah they're they're sharing stories about cannibalism and stuff and i'm like oh okay we're gonna move on and like my daughter starts asking what's a cannibal daddy and i'm like oh, okay god, we're gonna, that's we're the kind move of thing on. happening if i watch something like that <laughs> one of them would say it What's a spit daddy? Oh, it's a it's a stick. You stick like food on and then you cook it over a fire. They put children on spits? <laughs> oh, you heard that. Yeah. Like I <laughs> said, like, Damn it. that's the kind of Damn thing it. that would come up if I was to watch that. I, I've only watched the first episode of it, but they, they had the series at my library, so I'm renting it. I will crank the other ones out uh, after the kids go back to school because they had a long weekend. Moving on to my last thing of Terry Jones, because uh, we're going to move on to reading now, because they made a companion book for uh, Medieval Lives. And if you don't like watching documentaries, but you like reading historical books, the Medieval Lives book is like the director's cut of the series because it's basically the scripts of the show kind of arranged in more book format. But like a lot of the words are exactly the same. But because it's a book, they have more time to go into things uh, in some places. So like I said, it's just like the extended cut of the show. But I would recommend the book if you do not like watching documentaries. You can just read the book. The book is quite excellent. And that is my Terry Jones retrospective. I will have more because he did a, a few things on the barbarians and I have something else coming in of his. So yes, Terry Jones, uh, pouring out some for you, my homie. And then the other thing I've been reading, Jonathan is, uh, so I made a, uh, a D campaign setting made out of, or based off of we started just using Spanish names, but I kind of leaned into the Spain of it. Yeah. And I realized I have a big, giant blind spot when it comes to Spanish history. So I've been seeking to fix that. And uh, the first thing I did, because I'm a nerd and I'm a gamer, is I got my hands on a copy of Ars Magica Iberia for Ars Magica 3rd Edition, which I was reading. And it's been fascinating. I found out I have a gigantic blind spot uh, because a lot of people treat the uh, the Muslim period of of that country is kind of a footnote no, and it's like no it's it far was far from a footnote that and was what a thousand years yes editing robert here the muslims were in spain from the year 711 to 1492 or give or take 781 years now back to the show yes and a very interesting a thousand years and it would make a great dnd campaign setting Unfortunately, I already started my campaign, so it will. I, I don't know how I'm going to work it all in. Uh, I've got ideas, but yeah, it's it's been fun fun uh, reading about that. Traveling through Spain, that was one of my favorite things was seeing all of the the Moorish architecture everywhere. It was just amazing the level of influence, and you see it in the foods too. Yeah, and even after you know they got kicked out uh, by you know the, the various conquerors, and eventually uh, was it Isabella? I think is the one yeah. that finally finished them off. Even even after all that, it was still there, you know, like they still kept building buildings the same way, like it influenced them for till now. <laughs> so, yes, yes. Huge blind spot. I've got some other stuff coming in that I'm going to try to read. Uh, there's a book called Ornament of the World, which is about that period of history. So it'll be really interesting. But for those of you who want to look to the past to see something positive and hopefully maybe we can bring it into the future. What's interesting about the Islamic period of Spain is the uh, Islamic people moved in and decided not to murder or forcibly convert everybody. They just let everybody worship whoever they want. And so that period of time, the, the Muslims, the Christians and the Jews all got along and worked very hand in hand. And no less, they built a gigantic mosque that had places for the Jews and the Christians to worship all together in peace. So what a weird concept. 
I know. So that is what Ornament of the World is about. I will I will tell you more as I read it. But yeah, huge blind spot. I like I realize like all I know about Spanish history is like it comes in with the Spanish Armada because everything all the history teachers I had loved Queen Elizabeth. And so like, you know, the Spanish Armada is the bad guys. And that's like literally all I knew about them. So fixing that 40, 41 now years old. It's never too late to stop learning. Never too late to stop learning people. The so, more you know. The more you know. Na, 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 na. So there you go. All right, I'm done. That is my reading. What have you been reading? I have been continuing on with the Expeditionary Force uh, series. I have now completed all eight core books, the two side stories, and uh, the first book in the new series, which is uh, called Mavericks, which takes some characters that were uh, originally in the main series and gives them some parallel stories. Nice. And that is everything that has currently been published Book nine is out. I just have not had an opportunity to go get a copy yet. Well, you said you'd read Cersei to cleanse your palate before you moved on from that. So I will remind you of that. I I uh, plan to, but um, just as I was uh, looking for something to read, I happened to have a big block of time on my hands, but I could not leave the house because Amelia was napping. And I looked down and found, uh, just by chance, my copy of The Expanse. Well, the first book of The Expanse, Leviathan Wakes. So I just picked that up and started reading, and next thing I knew, I was 200 pages in. So I'm going to finish that and then go to Cersei. Man, I had forgotten how closely the first half of the se- the first season of Expanse on TV does such a good job of mirroring the book. It's really, it's it's just giving me a lot more appreciation for, for how well put together that show is. I think we've talked about this before, but The Expanse is based off of a D20 modern game that the authors were involved in at the time. And uh, I don't know who the character is, but one of the characters dies randomly and suddenly in the first half of the first book. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Spoiler alert. It's the medic on the ship. He gets knocked out by a random uh, rail projectile that just pierces the ship and goes right through it. So the reason that happened is the guy playing that character in the D20 mod, uh, D20 Future game, or actually it was D20 Modern because D20 Future didn't even exist yet. And if you want to know why all the technology seems so grounded and realistic, it was because they had D20 Modern and not D20 Future. So they just had to use the rules with what they had, <laughs> which was modern. Uh, but yeah, the player who was playing the medic, he had to leave the game. So they had to kill off his character. So Jonathan, if you were a game master and you were bringing in a new player with a new character to uh, merge them into the crew, would bringing them in to help them out during a very brutal gunfight that uh, was a little bit sketchy and, you know, didn't didn't know if you guys were going to succeed or fail, would bringing in a character to help them out with the gunfight, would yeah, that seem appropriate? Absolutely. Would that would, would that make the group trust them? So how was the, uh, the the detective character brought in to the rest of the crew? Uh, interesting. In the game? Interesting. <laughs> Yes, and that's why his story, that's why he knows all this stuff. That's why he happens to be after the same girl that they happen to be after. You know, it's just, that's all the backstory that the guy wrote. And the guy who plays the detective character is one of the two authors of the series. The other one was the GM. Interesting. So there you go. I did not know any of that. That just makes me love it even more. (laughs) Actually, I I do have to give kudos to the book. It's extremely well written. There is some descriptive language that is, I'd forgotten how good it was. Yeah, I need to read that series. It's on my agenda. I just I have a problem finishing series, so I well, kind of just want to wait. I give this my highest, but they don't seem cool. to be done. It is really good. I read spoilers that they do flash forward into the future at some point. <laughs> I'm not commenting. Okay, Robert. okay, because I, I maybe I should make it a goal to like read up to there or something. Give myself a an easier goal to achieve. I maybe just want you me. to read the books because they're very good, and I want to talk about them with you. Okay, fair enough. Well, I I got quite the cue because I'm learning about medieval Spain. 
shall we move right along then? Okay. Uh, you've been playing more video games than I, so why don't you go first? And yeah, I will finish um, this off. Because I was traveling, I had my laptop with me, and Mortal Kombat 11 was in there, so I got back into Mortal Kombat 11. Uh, yeah, played a lot of multiplayer with it, and it was great. Uh, got the new characters. Got the Terminator. Got Joker. <laughs> yeah, man, he's great. He's so great. Instead of doing an uppercut, he just puts a shotgun under your chin and pulls the trigger. <laughs> that's his version of the uppercut it's so brilliant and you you can come back from that that you can come back it's mortal combat you can come you back from your, everything yeah uh let's see yeah the the new characters are sindel she's got some ridiculous fatalities the terminator joker night wolf night wolf is fantastic he's a lot of fun to play so i Continue to stand by what I said. Mortal Kombat 11 is the best fighting game to be put out on the market by any company, bar none. I, I replayed now through the campaign story, and it still stands as one of the finest storytelling moments I've ever had in a video game of all time. To tie together the, the, the crazy narrative of the past 10 games and then make it all make sense, and furthermore, set yourself up for a reboot, that is technically a continuation of the timeline is nothing short of brilliant. Okay. So Jonathan, per your suggestion, which I don't think you made in the podcast. I think it was via text. I finally got my hands on blood. Oh, you got blood stained. Yes. Yes. And I beat it. Everything that you wanted and so much more. Yeah. Yeah. So I got it. You're welcome. I I got it from the library and I marathon through it because I only had it for a week because the wait list is long and I wasn't going to get it again for two months. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, um, Is it everything that I promised you it would be. Yeah, it's, it, it's basically honestly like playing it, uh, the last Castlevania game or the, not the last one I played, but the most recent one I played was, uh, uh, Aria of Sorrow. And it reminded me a lot of Aria of Sorrow from like the shards collecting them. And that one you collect souls. There's just a lot of mechanics from that, that are, you know, iterated on because you can like upgrade your shards and, you know, get more of them and blah, 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 blah. I like the the aiming of the magic. That's really funny. Yeah, clever. yeah, that that one's very cl- fun and clever. You're right. So yeah, it's it's an iteration of that. But yeah, I mean, it's it's just it's it's an extension of the Castlevania series. Oh yeah, I mean, like, look, man, do you have, do you get Metroidvania action? Yes. Is there a whip that you can use? Yes. Is it completely melodramatic? Yes. Does mm-hmm. it make any sense? No, absolutely not. And if it did, then shame on it. <laughs> That's not what this is about. You know, that's uh, you didn't hear it, but I, I completed Symphony of the Night with the, the revised dialogue. And that is actually it's failing. It wasn't melodramatic enough anymore. They made it kind no, of make more sense. No. Yeah, they failed. Yeah, no, just they, they shouldn't have touched it. No, they shouldn't have touched it. No. It was a work of art as it was. Yeah, exactly. And and now we have Bloodstained to take up the mantle. Yeah, I'm really hoping they make a part two because I, I got the I did all of the endings. You know, I got the bad ending and then the not so bad ending and then the good ending where you slice the moon in half. Spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's it was good times. Oops. It was good, good times. You know, it, the, the funny part about that game is it feels like it wants it wants so desperately to like just say it's Castlevania, but it can't. Yeah. Are, are you kicking lanterns to get money? Yeah. Yes. Check. The, the moment I picked up the whip for the first time, I was like, oh, you sneaky bastards. <laughs> I love you so much. I think they're called the Dulalin heads or something, but they're just Medusa heads. You know, there's there's yeah. a whole bunch of stuff yeah. in there that's direct homages. There's there's you know, they're not skeletons. They look like humanoid oil slicks, but they throw goo bones around and it's like yeah it's just skeletons but i don't know i felt bad for the guy because it it wanted so desperately to be a castlevania game but it couldn't and and that's the problem with the game it felt like it was kind of like in the middle of some like 
crazy long, overly long series, <laughs> you know, like storyline wise. Cause like it, it's, it's about like the second war against the demons and they sort of briefly talk about the first war, but it was like that, that should have been its own game. Maybe it will be, maybe that's what the first one, the next one will be about. Maybe it'll be a prequel, but yeah, it was just, uh, it was good though. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Good. I told you you would. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, video games for me, a little, uh, uh, next one on my list is apex, uh, finish up season four, season five. Actually, we're recording on the third of February. Uh, it starts tomorrow. I'm very excited. They just put out a trailer for the new character. Nice. I I haven't played that game in months. (laughs) You're missing out, man. Like the, the seasonal content and the new characters are great. I, I, I just don't have the time to get good at that game. That's, it's just frustrating. I, I heard they actually put in matchmaking, which might I, I, I probably should give it another go because that was my main frustration with it. It, it was like a lot of like uh, deathmatch from other games where they just throw you in versus everybody. And I was just having a problem because sometimes, you know, you get in these really dynamic and interesting firefights with people of my skill. And then occasionally I would just die like I'd be I'd be, you know, just walking around and I'd see somebody and they would like just shoot me once and I would just die. And I'm like, what the hell just <laughs> happened and it was like oh it's somebody who knows what they're doing you know and i hear they've got matchmaking in it now which would be nice because i would like to be paired with people who are appropriate to my skill level so i could like get into a gunfight for more than five seconds and actually improve well all this of course is my personal opinion but i think it's the the best uh battle royale game on the market i've been having so much fun with it no like i said it i know it's got matchmaking now i should give it another go because hopefully i'll be able to learn something i mean that's my frustration with fortnite too like I, I get into a gun battle and I just die and I don't have time to like learn the ins and outs and the flow, you know, and it, it it's just like 10 minutes of me running around and then 30 seconds of me dying repeat. And it's like, uh, well, that's how you learn. That was me the first like two weeks of mortal or of uh, modern warfare, the call the COD game. My goodness, I die. I would just die so much. I know, but that, it, it's frustrating just spending that much time to just die that quickly, you know? When Fortnite added in the level where you could respawn, that helped a lot because then I could just respawn and try again. And and I started learning the flow of combat when they did that. So maybe that's what Apex needs to do. I don't know. Or maybe they just need matchmaking and it'll be better now. Who knows? I should try it. Um, yeah. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I picked up a new game on Steam Stupid Cheap Sale mm-hmm. and it's called Frontier Pilot Simulator. Yep. I mean, you know why I had to buy it. Right. It's kind of fun. It's uh, takes place on an alien world and it's in the future and you have a little VTOL aircraft. Uh, that's vertical takeoff and landing for those of you who don't know the VTOL acronym. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you just zip around and it's uh, kind of like Crazy Taxi with uh, future spacecraft. Hmm. I like Crazy Taxi. Fun. And I'm having a blast with it. I'm having an absolute blast with it. I am just about to buy my second aircraft. Uh, which is a major upgrade in the amount of cargo that I can take uh, and the amount of people I can take and the distance that I can travel, which is going to really open up the world to me. Fun. Good times. Because when you first start out, you're just doing these little uh, hop, skip, and a jump missions around this primary island that you start on. And then uh, that's it for video games for me. Should we move on? Yes. Before we move on to board games, which I played none, so I will not have much to say for the remainder of this segment. Uh, I just want to give a plug to my cousin uh, or my wife's cousin, uh, Jean Frazier. Uh, she got she's getting her book published. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's called Pizza Girl. It'll be out in June. I don't know. Go read a little blurb on it if it sounds remotely interesting. Buy it from an independent bookseller because that helps it get on the bestseller list and gets my cousin the dollar dollar bills. So... Yes. Not that Jean probably listens to this podcast because she is so much more hip than me, Jonathan. She is so much more hip. 
But <laughs> if she does, we got our copy pre-ordered. I will read it and I will report back in June. I'm down. I think we should cover it on the show. Yeah. I'll, I'll see if she wants to be on it. She will have nothing to talk about. She is so much more hip than us, Jonathan. Like, like our level of cool will go up by an order of a magnitude if she is on our show for five minutes. That is how cool she is. Go, board games. All right, board games. Well, because I was with my friends, I got a chance to play a couple of really good board games. And I'm going to save... Uh, I actually want to deep dive one of them. I'd like to deep dive Flamme Rouge in the future. Okay, but you played Flamme Rouge. So I will just say that I played Flamme Rouge. Flamme Rouge is brilliant. I had a lovely time with it. I think it might be uh, replacing Downforce as my favorite racing game. Mother of God. Uh, had a chance to play, uh, by the way, Jonathan, Jonathan, hold up, hold up, hold up, back the truck up, back the truck up. I want, I want you to know something. So in the notes, you did the reverse of the classic blunder. So being on D and D message boards and all that, all of my life, a lot of people spell rogue as rouge. It's flame or, you know, it's, it's like I'm playing a rouge and, uh, and it's hysterical. It's a funny thing. So on our notes, you didn't spell it flame rouge. You spelled it flame rogue. Oh, how funny. I'm not even 100% sure I spelled it that way. That might have been auto-checked. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Because it is a word. So we'll find out. But I, I'm finding that humorous. I just want you to know. Moving right along, sir. Sorry for the interruption. I just had to say that out loud. Uh, that's okay. Uh, I played Spiel the Yar winner, or pardon me, nominee Llama. Is this Llama with the scarf and the smile? Yes. Oh, so good. How, how did that play? It's fun. It's a very light game. It's... Uh, Kind of like Uno on steroids. Nice. Okay. Fair enough. And I say that with with great affection. I I had a blast with it. There there are enough additional levels to it that it really does feel more like a board gamer's game. There's a lot of little mini puzzles to figure out, but there it definitely harkens back to some of the classic Uno thoughts. Uh, I also had a chance to play a new game called Bites. And Bites, uh, it's kind of similar to Camel Cup, where you are trying to uh, basically manage uh, these ants that are not directly in your control. You just choose which one moves at any given time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it has shades of Takanoko in that you're on this giant trail and you're stopping to get things. And you're trying to collect collections of things that you cash in for points at the end. But the trick is that as you're going, uh, because you are getting to control one of the ants during any given uh, trip down, basically it's, it's just this long trail of food that you're eating. Whichever ant gets to the end, you get to select an item and then that sets the points for it. And so that can make certain items worth a lot of points. And so there's, there's an extra layer of thinkiness to it that, that was a surprise and, and a welcome one at that. Yeah, and then we had a chance to sit down and play some more parks, and it was as lovely as the first time I played it. It's just such a fun, beautiful game. It's got that Takanovico vibe, but in our national parks, and there's a couple additional thought puzzles to it, and there's just a lot to love there, not to mention it is just drop-dead gorgeous. And uh, yeah, that's about it, Robert, which of course means we are at the end of our first segment, my friend. Yes, we'll be right back. Immediately, not a couple days later, but immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Through the magic of radio and time travel. Oh, yeah. We will return just in just a moment after a short break with our No Time to Bond segment and our, of course, our Wisdom of Crowds. 
We love getting feedback, so please let us know how we're doing by hitting us up at one of the following. You can join us on Patreon, where we post bonus content. You can also message us or tweet at us on the Twitter. Find us at Forgot My Dice. You can join us in our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash FMD podcast. If you like the show, the best way for more people to find out about us is to give Forgot My Dice a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Lastly, for those of you seeking experiences beyond our concepts of pleasure and pain, set the Lamont configuration to full hell mode. Oddly, you can find us in several levels of the labyrinth as the only thing playing on the radio. Wait, what? I have such sights to show you, Jonathan. Ah, oh, I need to take your Netflix account away from you. And welcome back from the break. It is, of course, now time for our bi-weekly tabletop news segment, Wisdom of Crowds. And Robert, I see you've got some D&D in there. Yes, yes. Lots of D&D, lots of D&D. So the London Toy Fair happened and Hasbro had a booth and there was something D&D related there. They had a board game there called The Adventurer's Gate, or The Adventure Begins. It had both titles. <laughs> One was on the prototype box, and the other was in the catalog. Oh, <laughs> I like it. But, so we'll find out which name it actually gets. But it is under Hasbro Gaming Branding, so it's going to be mass market, target, you know, big release. Yeah. The copy reads, Welcome new fans. This portal to the monster, magic, and heroes of the classic fantasy role-playing game. Players do not need any prior knowledge of the D&D world or characters with simplified concepts and fast-paced gameplay. Players set out to battle monsters, collect treasure, and not die. This is a really fun and accessible game for those who want to enter the D&D world for the first time. And I think the interwebs has pegged this one right. This seems like uh, Dragon Strike Second Edition. Do you remember Dragon Strike? I do. I do indeed. <laughs> it doesn't appear to have a videotape, but it should. It should. That's true. <laughs> well, Robert, you know I love deck building, right? Mm-hmm. And you know I love Terminator. Yes. Well, River Horse Games has taken it upon themselves to combine those two things into the Terminator Dark Fate card game. Mm. It's coinciding with the digital release of the movie, so it should be in stores right about now-ish. Yeah, Dark Fate came out, I think. Yeah, I think so. Two to four players work together to collect weapons and resources. You are always, always under threat for, from a Rev-9 Terminator, the same one from the film. And when in, uh, a Rev-9 does show up, you have to make a decision whether you have enough to fight it or whether it's time to flee and run away. Did you see Terminator Dark Fate? Not yet. Uh, it's on my list of things to grab as soon as I have an opportunity to go to Target. Cool. All right. So it's 182 cards uh, for the core game, 30 wound cards, four cards for the Rev-9 Terminator, and four characters. And you get a bunch of uh, groovy little acrylic crystals to track your damage with. Nice. I like it. So, uh, River Horse has put up a web page for the product, and there you go. Officially licensed Terminator deck builder. This is one of those where if I saw it on the shelf, I don't know that I would not be able to buy it. Deck builders are fun. I yeah, like I like builders. deck builders. Now, I've talked about mechs versus minions a lot on this show. Yes. It's come did up, we do a deep dive of it? Uh, did we? I, I don't know. I don't we think did. so. I don't think we did a deep dive of it. It just It's something that hits the table pretty regularly. Okay. As I work through the campaign. Well, Riot Games, the company behind it, and they are, of course, the company behind League of Legends, they have announced uh, a couple of new games. So, uh, first we're getting Tellstones, King's Gambit, 
So Telstones is a bluffing game, and all it consists of is just some um, some little discs with symbols on it. It's almost like a shell game, like you would see at a carnival, uh, with a couple of different layers to it. And it's all about bluffing with the other person, trying to remember what is where, and uh, it, it kind of escalates in complexity as you go up. Cool. They've also hinted very heavily that there's more games on the ro- on the way, but that's the only one they're willing to talk about right now. Riot did put out a press release. It's got lots of good copy in it. I would definitely suggest going and reading it. So uh, we reported a while ago that Wizards of the Coast bought, or didn't buy, uh, this is the one they opened. They opened a game studio in Austin, Texas. I know, I know, which is super exciting. Yes, well, they announced a little bit more today. First up, the studio is called Archetype Entertainment. So yay, it's got a name now. And their debut project is described as a multi-platform role-playing game set in a, quote, all-new science fiction universe that will send players on a story-driven epic where choices they make will have real consequences on how their story unfolds. And it will not be in a D&D or a Magic franchise. And it's uh, coming from the people who did Dragon Age, Baldur's Gate, Neverwinter Nights, Star Wars Old Republic, and Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic. So color me intrigued. Yeah, I mean, you had me at sci-fi. Yeah, yeah, sci-fi role-playing game. I'm going to get the Outer Worlds pretty soon, so I wonder where it's going to fall into that. You know, I started playing Outer Worlds, and I really enjoy it. We'll see if they're going to make a role-playing game on it, because I, I don't know why Wizards wouldn't have a tie-in property. That doesn't make any sense to me, but we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> well, Wizards has been pretty good at mixing their media, so let's hope. Well, we talked about it on the show. We talked about Journeys in Middle-Earth, right? The uh, fantasy flight game that borrows heavily from um, Mansions of Madness. Yes, well, it's getting its first expansion, its first big expansion, I should say, because I've already picked up a couple of extra characters for it. It's getting a new expansion called Shadowed Paths, and this will be a new campaign, and it uh, includes the Forest of Mirkwood, the Mines of Moria, and much, much more. Um, it will have five brand new characters to play, including Arwen, Balin, Gandalf, and a couple of surprises. And there will now be a new type of damage that sticks with your characters. It's called Corruption. Hmm, and okay. it will be tracked by the app, which is interesting, meaning you can't fudge it. <laughs> I like that. Uh, there will also be a bunch of new monsters. Uh, in the press release, they have a picture of a, a giant spider and skeletons and uh, a couple other little surprises that they haven't talked about yet. A, a giant spider in the Lord of the Rings property doesn't mean anything. There are so many giant spiders. Well, how about Balrog? <laughs> That would be fun. Yeah, well, he's in there, too. Well, there you go. Good times. Good times. So they're saying that it's going to be arriving in stores quarter two, 2020, which means April, May, June-ish. All right, so my last story, Jonathan, Wizards gave us some love earlier this week when they uh, very briefly released a uh, Unearthed uh, Arcana with the Cleric's Love Domain, among other things. And then it kind of got a Twitter hullabaloo because... Uh, they were going with sort of the, I'll call it the classic and or bad take on love, which is its channel divinity ability allowed you basically a, to charm a person and get them to do whatever you wanted with your love powers, which was a little creepy. And uh, there was a little bit of a hollow on Twitter. <laughs> James Bond would approve. James Bond would approve. So Wizard wisely yanked it with little fanfare and it was down for a couple days. And then all of a sudden earlier today, or in the future, or whatever, because we're totally recording this right after we record last segment. They re-released it with the Unity domain, which is completely different. It's not even like 
<laughs> it, it doesn't even have the same channel divinity. I didn't get a chance to like look at the love domain, so I don't know how much it lines up, but it doesn't look like uh, what little blurbs I've seen of it. It doesn't look like a lot of it does. So yes, they've taken away love, but it brought us unity instead. Huzzah. There you go. Well, I've saved the best, in my humble opinion, for last, Robert. Classic Clash of Cultures is coming out with a brand new edition. WizKids now owns the IP. It was formerly with Z-Man, and they are releasing Clash of Cultures Monumental Edition. Nice. Yeah, I could not be more stoked. If you have played a game like Civilizations or um, anything along those lines, Clash of Cultures, as far as board games go, is the big daddy. It is so much fun. It is so good. Uh, from Christian Markison, who, of course, is the designer of one of my other favorites, Merchants and Marauders. So the Monumental Edition is currently available for pre-orders. It will include the Civilizations and Aztec expansions, which, if you remember, your history were super, super hard to get. I think nice. Z-Man only printed them once. If you go on uh, eBay or whatnot, I mean, I regularly see them for 200 250 bucks. Ouch. Yeah. They were just impossible to find. A very small number were produced. Uh, they are talking about availability in November of 2020. Well, that brings us to the end of the news, which, of course, means it is time for our Year in the Life segment. This is where we put on our time machine goggles and we look back into the past. When 365 days ago, we were in episode 56? Yes, Ask Not For Whom the Dog Barks, where we were talking to Professor of Zombology, Brendan Riley. And friend of the show, Brendan Riley. And friend of the show. Brendan, you are way too prolific with your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) No joke, the man has exceeded 200 episodes. Yes. Well, he told us his secret, which is he doesn't edit anything, which he has on us, because we could probably do that really easily if we wanted to. Yeah, he does have a good point there. And his episodes are considerably shorter. But that being said, he is very, very prolific. I think I'm yes. I'm creeping up on 100, and he's already in, in, on, in the 200. So I figured that you could just set my corpse up in the corner at some point and uh, put some earbuds in and uh, just let me finish it out. <laughs> do you do you listen to enough po- episodes to like catch up eventually or do you listen to at least I was weeks? for a while but then he exploded with content again and I fell back behind so I don't know uh, okay okay well you, I guess you need to listen to at least five a week for it to have any hope of catching up yeah either that or I can pull a Tanya Harding and kneecap him then he can't go on his walk and then he can't record <laughs> problem solved that that seems like dirty pool my friend dirty pool <laughs> Dirty pool, old boy. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that was what was happening a year ago. Now it is time for us to continue our retrospective. No time to bond. We're going to start with part three. The third film of the series, Goldfinger, released on September 17th, 1964, directed by Guy Hamilton with a budget of $3 million, made $125 million in in that time. Sound investment. Yes, yes, yes. And it had the budget of the previous two movies combined, which you can kind of see. Like, a lot of the set pieces were a lot better in this one. Yeah, no, you definitely see the dollars. So, should we start with the good or should we start with the bad? Well, I'm going to start with one good thing right off the bat. Miss Shirley Bassey, I love you. You have the most amazing voice. He's the man, the man with the mightest touch. She's amazing. The touch of gold. 
this touch is cold. I read that uh, that note she hits for like hours. Yeah, no kidding, uh, man. The first time she did it, she almost passed out. <laughs> well, I mean, she holds it forever. Yeah. She just goes. And then just when you think that she's going to run out of air, she just keeps going. Yeah, it's like she gets like a second wind somewhere. <laughs> it's like she's got a third lung. I mean, she's just amazing. You know, she's still got it, too. If you're, She still sings, and she's still got it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm still in love with Shirley Bassey. It's fair for, for me to say that. Absolutely. Okay. I like it. I like it. Let's deal with the bad. Let's deal with the bad. So much bad. <laughs> Where do we begin with bad? The, the slap on the behind and man talk darling. Oh man. Like, where do we even begin? I mean, yeah. this is compared to the last two films. This is when we start to get into the extremely questionable early bond content because mm-hmm. man, this, this one's a the bit of a hot mess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean the general sexism from earlier in, in the early movie is as nothing, nothing on the, the pussy galore, old school Hollywood, uh, resisting while I'm being kissed and then melting into your arms thing that Hollywood used to do. Oh God. Yeah. The, yeah. That is the, the most questionable of all content because he basically <laughs> forces himself on her and then yes. she melts under his masculinity. Yes. And, uh, uh, the lady played Pussy Galore. Uh, first off, she apparently got quite a kick out of saying her character's name a lot in interviews because it made the interviewers uncomfortable, which is hilarious. But she also was on the record of saying that she just thought she was a lesbian because uh, Pussy Galore was a lesbian in, in the original novel. Which they hint at pretty heavily in the film. Yes. But Goldfinger treated her, quote, so badly that she just thought she was a lesbian. And uh, like Jay of uh, the View Askewverse... You know, all uh, all lesbian needs is a series deep. You know what? So yeah, bad takes. A lot of bad takes. <laughs> so many bad takes in this movie. Yeah, it, it, it's uh, it's a rough one. It's a rough one. Oh, uh, uh, ah, Thunderball's worse. Um, <laughs> but we'll get to that in a second. There, there are some aspects of the movie that are actually quite good. Like I think Goldfinger is one of my favorite Bond villains of all time because he's fun and he's having a really good time b- being a villain. Yeah, like he's he's just very jolly about the villainous, and he has the best line in any Bond movie of all time. Because instead of going into a mad raving soliloquy about all of his plans, let's do it. Let's do it. I'll, I'll be I'll be Connery. Are you ready? Are you ready? Go for it. You expect me to talk? No, Mister Bond. I expect you to die. <laughs> yes, that's the way a villain should be. None of this. Let me tell you all my plans nonsense. Just get to the killing. No, no, he explains all of his plans to the the mob guys he murders in his house. Like, yeah, he has this like, and he, the only reason he does house. it is because he wants he wants to say his plans so very badly that he creates this elaborate situation, including a, a transforming room, just so that he can say his plans and then kill everybody to make sure they don't get out. And, and he crushes the one guy. <laughs> he it, had a very crushing engagement. You know, we completely glossed over in the bad. This is not the most racist Bond movie towards Asian people. No, although it feels like it when you're first watching it, because they basically treat all of the henchmen as clowns. Yes. And odd job. At least they say he's mute and loud, but yeah, he just grunts. Bond got woke in this episode of uh, of No Time to Bond because, uh, yes, they actually got a Korean guy to play a Korean, which is more you can say than any of the previous films. 
And and somehow so they took that step right off of the the staircase and went backwards in the future. Yeah, well, you go well, one step forward and you take two steps back. Oh, and, well, uh, I think it's a lot, a lot more than two, but we'll talk about that when we get to it. Well, and we'll talk about it with Ray. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> we I can't wait. Anything else that you want to bring up with Goldfinger? No, I mean it. It's definitely got the the Bond plot structure. Like this is the one where they got it finally. And, and oh yeah, we'll no, see it, how it, far they the, deviate from it. It's forward. the formula the way we know it. Yes, Shirley Bassey is superior to Tom Jones, who did the last song and then the next one. So let's move on, Jonathan. I think we're ready. Yeah. Ready? So uh, Tom Jones brings us into Thunderball, part four of our twenty six part series. One of the weakest intro songs of any James Bond movie, released on December 9th, including the Madonna one. <laughs> directed by I like the Madonna one. Oh, directed by really? Terrence Young. We'll get there. We'll get there. Um, it had a budget of nine million dollars, which is way more than all of the budgets of the previous movies combined, and it made one hundred forty-one million. And it has the interesting yeah three times the budget, but it only made fifteen million more than the previous one. I think a lot of that has to do with the legal proceedings. With uh, yeah, this basically is the messy Ian, one. Well, one of Ian the Fleming uh, worked with a guy called Kevin McClory to write a Bond script that never got made. And so he just turned that into a novel without, you know, like crediting Kevin or giving him money. And so he got sued. And then Eon Productions got sued because they started using Spectre. And Spectre was invented for the script of Thunderball. And like Ian Fleming's like, I totally used Spectre before, you know, because they had all these like Spectre puns. But they, as a evil organization devoted to terrorism and extortion and whatever, like that didn't exist prior to this. And like he never credited Kevin or gave him money. So, yeah, there were some legal proceedings. So Kevin and another dude are listed as producers on this film, even though they had very little to do with it. They just cut, they cut him a check and walked. And then Kevin got the rights to uh, redo Thunderball uh, anytime he wanted with Bond in it. Uh, which we will get to in the early 80s with uh, Never Say Never Again. <laughs> Whoa, and what a spectacular mess that one is. <laughs> but we, we've still got the whole 70s to go through. First off, don't think there are any Asian people in this one, so I guess I, I, I guess they can't fail that test. Yeah, so, that, that one, it, it, it does not fail. But let's <laughs> talk about the awkward definitely forcing himself upon the lady at the spot. No, no, it's not even – it's so much worse than that. It, it really is. So basically Bond gets like strapped to one of those like old-timey like <laughs> exercise machines. <laughs> Which – with footage that is so obviously sped up and is so awkward at best and just crazy. Yeah. yeah. And so like somebody sabotages it and turns it up to 11 and then the lady comes back. And, says, <laughs> and then oh, he locks that tell- dude in the sauna box. <laughs> yeah. You know, but he basically tells – she's like, you're, you're not going to tell on me, will you? And he's like, well, if you have sex with me, I won't tell I won't tell you and get get you fired. And yeah, he basically gets – this sleeps with this lady by coercing her with I, – I will get you fired unless you have sex with me, which is I'm, – I'm not sure what's worse. Like like what happened in that first movie with the hench lady or this, but it's they're both pretty bad. They're both pretty I bad. Wanna, they're I think this both one's worse. really bad. I think this one's worse, but oh my god. Don't forget about the awkward fight with the cross-dressing Spectre agent. I always forget about that because I, yeah. It's yeah, so the jet awkward. Pack doesn't, the jetpack doesn't save it. but No, uh, but the jetpack is the best part of it. Yes. I like how he puts the helmet on because, you know, safety first. And how it's obviously a stunt double. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously. Um, but anyway, all right, let's get to the good. We had a little bit of a disagreement when we were talking about this initially about the uh, if if you see the money because there was a lot more money in this one, but they they actually built a plane and dumped it somewhere in the ocean, so there's that. I I, I think the sets like on location, considering the difference between this and Doctor No, were pretty extreme. 
Yeah, they, they I'll give you that. Built them. I'll give you that. The, the whole concept of ditching the jet like that was actually an interesting concept. I like that. I don't remember this one fondly, and I liked it better than I thought, except for that goofy sequence with the underwater fighting at the end. That was just weird. Yeah, that was almost like, look, we built this big old tank, so we better use it. Yeah, and, and Bond gets like the super spy like jet underwater pack that it's like bend over to shoot like harpoons out of it yep. nonsense it's uh, like on bond level sheer goofery i think this movie kind of hits all its marks the second half of the movie is, is taut it's well put together Ex- except for the underwater fight sequence that part was terrible uh, uh, I'll, I'll agree <laughs> with you but, but thinking about the context of time in the 1960s that was amazing <laughs> it was so goofy. They have, U.S. Special Forces and these henchmen have a harpoon and knife fight underwater. It's amazing. <laughs> it's so bad. <laughs> it goes on forever, too. It just keeps going and going. And they're like, ah, oh, my gosh. So what's next? Uh, next up is, uh, the, I, I think, probably the most racist Bond movie never. Uh, or you only live probably? twice. Probably? Probably? Probably, I. You know what? I only the Sith deal in absolutes, my friend. I, I I'm not going to say for sure, but I'm. Dude, it's I'm like Mickey sure. Rooney racist. Oh, oh, oh! One thing I did notice in this, right at the beginning, right before he meets all the other Double O agents, he throws his hat like he always does, and then on his way out, he says, "I thought I had a hat," and he walks out. I think that's the last appearance of him wearing a fedora. <laughs> well, the times were changing. Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the other Double O's steals it, and he just doesn't have it anymore because it's not fashionable. Well, there you go. I think we're done for a week. Yep, so join us in a couple of weeks when we hit You Only Live Twice on our next No Time to Bond. With Ray! With special guest Ray talking about special guest Ray! Woo! He's got a much sexier voice than either of us because he uses his voice in a professional capacity as opposed to our amateurish junior high nonsense. Shut up, dickwad. (laughs) Well played. Well played. It's now time for us to take a short break, and when we return, it will be time for our deep dive, where no one can hear you scream. Ah! I said no one. Did you hear that? Uh, No. Ah! Still nothing. (laughs) Definitely nothing. All right. (laughs) Bye-bye. Do you have a tabletop, board game, miniature game, or RPG that you're going to release for retail? Or do you have an upcoming tabletop Kickstarter that you're about to launch? We would love to interview you for a future episode of the Forgot My Dice podcast. Send us an email to fmdpodcast2016 at gmail.com to schedule an interview. And welcome back from the break. Now we dive deep into what I would consider one of the surprise products of the year already. Well, actually, it came out at the end of last year. It was in December. So the surprise best of 2019. product for 2019 then. Did, did you hear the crack in the air, by the way, when you sent me that picture initially? No. That was the sound of my head whipping sideways in envy and quickly hitting Amazon and ordering it for myself. <laughs> we are, of course, talking about the alien RPG Space is vast, dark, and not your friend. Gamma rays and neutrino bursts erupt from dying stars to cook you alive. Black holes tear you apart, and the void itself boils your blood and seizes your brain. Try to scream, and no one can hear you. Hold your breath, and you rupture your lungs. Space isn't as empty as you'd think, either. Its frontiers are ever-expanding. Rival governments wage a cold war of aggression while greedy corporations vie for valuable resources. 
Colonists reach for the stars and gamble with their lives. Each new world tamed is either feast or famine, and there are things lurking in the shadows of every asteroid. Things strange, different, deadly, things alien. This is the official licensed alien tabletop role-playing game, and it is amazing. Yes. I don't even know where to begin with this. I mean, honestly, there is no amount of praise that I can heap upon this. But the first thing that I should note, and this is something that is so good in their previous books as well. These are, of course, the makers of another game that we have uh, deep dove on the show, which is Tales from the Loop and its sequel. And that is Free League and... The one thing that they do better than anybody else in the RPG game, I think, is setting. My God, this book is just dripping with setting. So in my head, what I noticed is there was kind of like the primary canon and then there was the secondary canon, uh, which we can get into if we want. But they did such a good job of pulling elements out of so much stuff (laughs) that it's absurd. Yeah, like it's, it's so really well amazing. And, and they did it in such a way that if you're like an alien super duper fanboy of the films, like you'll recognize a whole bunch of stuff. If you're a super duper fanboy of the films and you read all of like the, the making of stuff, like the making of Alien 3, which is a much more interesting story than the movie that it, it yeah, became. No but a whole bunch of that stuff gets its way in. And then the comic books from Dark Horse and all that, a lot of that stuff gets into it. So... Well, okay, so let's let's talk about what the setting is. I think that I think that's the best thing to do. So, on the surface, primary Prometheus, Covenant, Alien, Aliens, Alien Three are all directly referenced. Like those happen. Those are definitely they, they reference Alien Four as well. I thought no Resurrection because that takes place in the year three thousand, and it's not the year three thousand. Oh, that's true. That's true. That's true. Uh, maybe they just had a quote. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, they might have had a quote. Also, also very, very referenced throughout the game, including in the timeline, is Alien Isolation from Sega, the, the video game. Yes, absolutely. With the Seagun Car- Corporation, Slava, Slava, I can't even say that word, Slava Spool Station, <laughs> Working Joe's. Sevastopol. Sla- yeah, um, which is, yeah, they, they mention all that stuff, which is directly from that video game. And also they pull a lot of lore out of uh, one of the unproduced alien scripts, which I read the comic book adaptation of not all that long ago, the uh, William Gibson's Alien 3. Oh, why didn't we get that? <laughs> it wouldn't have been good. <laughs> Shut your mouth. It wouldn't have been good. <laughs> Trust me, somebody would have screwed that up somewhere. The studio was so meddling. Um, well, that was, I mean, where do I begin with that? Yeah. But if you've ever read that script, it's it's just jaw-droppingly you good. should go read the comic book version of it because it's quite good i have read that we talked about it like three or four episodes ago i know i know <laughs> okay so yeah like that stuff is all in the primary canon like they talk about it they have like a timeline they talk about it a lot um and when we talk about the script for alien 3 what we are very directly referencing is um like the colonial marines and like uh dallas in the first uh, movie has a patch on his arm that says like the united americas like there's this whole sort of like subtext about the state of the world that they don't directly reference, but the William Gibson alien three really defines it where there's like a cold war in space between the United Americas and, um, uh, the, the, there it is the union of progressive peoples, or as I like to call them space, Russia or space, USSR (laughs) space, Russia. I like space, Russia rolls off Uh, the tongue. 
Yeah. So, and even, and if you go into the more direct timeline where they talk about what happened, they talk about this anti-technology cult that like wiped a lot of stuff off the interwebs or the future interwebs or whatever they have. Um, and that's from another unproduced Alien 3 script, which is uh, Vincent Ward's Alien 3 script where uh, they talk about Archeron Station, a.k.a. the Wooden Space Station. Yeah. <laughs> but that that's the cult that's on that space station. And so it's it's interesting how just all of this stuff ties together. But yeah, basically, the nutshell is this takes place a little bit after Alien 3. The one dude at the end of Alien 3 survived. He wrote a book called Space Beast about his encounter with a dragon. Yeah, on one the of planet. the prisoners from the... Yeah, the, the only guy who survived. It was that one yeah. crazy dude. And then, of course, uh, Wayland yutani a couple of the governments, they're all trying to get this book wiped off the face of the earth, which is just making it spread more via pirating. And so, yeah, basically the state of the galaxy is there's sort of a cold war between space America and space Russia. And then there's sort of a space China slash England in there too. What was like kind of a cold war sort of tenseness between all three is really destabilized because of the actions of Wayland yutani and people, you know, not really knowing what's going on, like what they were testing on Hadley's hope. And uh, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And then if you know your stuff, there's a lot of stuff in the secondary canon where they talk about like random worlds. Like they talk about Xenos prime, which is from the alien earth war series. They talk about like a, a replicant of Ripley that they make, which is uh, something they did in one of the comics. Yeah. There's even references to the AVP fire and stone series um, with uh cause that talks a bit about what happened on um, LV Prometheus, 426. not 426 is like two, two, one, the one that was in Prometheus. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, to, I think you're 221. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So they talk about that in, in that too, which is funny because it's totally this AVP comic that they're referencing, but they just kind of drop all the predator parts. Like, (laughs) but yeah, the, the setting is just so good. Like, like if you're an aliens fanboy, there's just so many layers and they, they just handle it. Everything so well, you know, they really do. I mean, that's, that's one of the key things about this book is not just the depth that it goes into the setting, but handling with extreme care of a franchise with some extremely deep lore that most people have not been exposed to. That's kind of what's nice about the lore. Like you, you can very much go into it if you feel the urge, but um, you know, but this, this book does a really good job of just sort of like collating all of that into something very easily accessible. If, if you're an aliens fan at all, uh, and, and even if you're not necessarily an RPG fan, this is, I would still consider this an essential book because it, you're right, Robert. It does collate it all together into a beautiful way. Agreed. Yeah, it's 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 so well done. I I, I was reading the setting parts of this book and I just just jaw on the floor. Like I was like they 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 took this licensed property with all of this weird stuff and they just they they put it together in this package that just works. And you know even stuff that like contradicts each other because like a lot of the Dark Horse comics like contradict later movies. Um, you know, they kind of acknowledge it, you know, like when they talk about Xenos prime, they, they say, you know, they say this, you know, may or may not be something like, you know, uh, I, I they just did such a good job. Like I'm, I'm so impressed with this book. <laughs> it's everything yeah. I wanted. It's like everything I wanted in alien RPG. It's just, it's perfect. Well, it's and, perfect. and they take it a step further because the, the system here is not one that we're unfamiliar with because it is the system from, um, tales from the loop. Yes. Yes. But they have adapted it to the material in some extremely clever ways. I'm especially fond of character creation. Character creation is just handled so very, very well. And it borrows some serious themes from the movies that are, are not necessarily readily apparent until they point it out. And then you realize, oh, yeah, that's in everything. Um, I really like that you have to pick a buddy 
And mm-hmm. I really like that you have to pick a, a foe and that those can change based on the, the event in the story. It's actually very similar to Tales from the Loop, where you, you have like an archetype you pick, which gives you a lot of stuff. But this game is a little bit more because of the property, not, not fleshed out fiddly. It, it's got more stuff because like in Tales from the Loop, like the kids don't when you pick what kind of kid you are, it just kind of determines some skills and some other things. Whereas this, you get to pick one of three like traits, which give you bonuses. And it's based off of you and, you know, the career you pick, which they have several. They have Colonial Marine, Colonial Marshal, a.k.a. Space Sheriff. Company agent, kid, medic, officer, pilot, roughneck, and scientist. And yeah, each of those has three three talents. And then there's a list of general talents that anybody can take. And so, but you pick one of your career-specific talents. At the like, let, 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 let's run through an example here. Let me go ahead and bring one up. You know what? I'm going to choose pilot because you know how much I love aviation. There you go. The first thing you do is you choose a personal agenda. And you can either choose from some options that they provide you, or you can choose your own personal agenda. For instance, the pilots, the three options that they give you are it's about pushing the limit, taking a chance, taking risks. So take a risk or you're stubborn and don't like to back down, even if your friends get might get hurt or you're a loner, always happier when you can do a task without relying on others. Your key attribute as a pilot is agility, which makes sense because you're going to be quick on your feet. Key skills are mobility, range combat and calm tech. Your career talents are full throttle, like the back of your hand and reckless you get a signature item. Yeah, which is also from Tales from the Loop. Yeah. Uh, a dashboard dancer, a pilot's logbook, or pilot shades. Or you can come up with one on your own. Mm-hmm. And then you get a bunch of options for appearance, like an arrogant walk, or sunglasses, or choose gum, or skeptical look, etc. Yeah, this and reminds me get- of uh, stuff I saw in p- various Powered by the Apocalypse games, where they have a lot of this stuff set out for you. Which is a good idea, because if you don't have like a strong vibe of a uh, character you want to do... It uh, it gives you a lot of just pre-built stuff for you to sort of cook into your own character or yeah. build ideas off of. And, and something as simple as an arrogant walk. Like, go watch any movie about aviation. <laughs> Aviators are type A personalities. Of course, they're going to have a little bit of swagger. Um, then you, ha- you get gear. You get to choose two items from a list that they give you. And then you get a bunch of cash. With the pilot, it's D6 times 100. So you get to choose either an M4A3 service pistol or a PRPUT uplink terminal, which, of course, keys right back into that ComTech talent. Uh, You get a hand radio or D6 flares. You get a maintenance jack or a Siegson PDAT, which is like a little uh, data pad, right? Yeah, Siegson, if you don't know your aliens lore, Siegson is basically the poor man's Weyland-Yutani. They do everything Weyland-Yutani does. It's just cheaper and crappier. Uh, and then you get a Siegson system diagnostic device or an IRC Mark 50 compression suit. So that that gives you the basics of your pilot. So there's four attributes. You mentioned one of them, uh, strength, agility, wits, and empathy. And there's three skills associated with each stat. So strength has heavy machinery, stamina, and close combat. Uh, agility has mobility, ranged combat, and piloting. Wits is observation, context, survival, and empathy is command, manipulation, and medical aid. Um, and then basically the system is you take your stat, you take your skill, that gives you a dice pool, you roll the dice, and you try to get as many sixes as possible, which is the exact system from Tales from the Loop. And we will go into the wrinkle in just a sec about how they make it scary and alien stuff. So when you do the skill checks, you can fail, you can succeed, um, you can also press, uh, oftentimes, which will give you stress, and stress is basically going to have a negative effect on you the, the more of it that you pile on. Um, And you can also do a stunt. So how would you describe a stunt, Robert? Stunts are, if I remember correctly, you're just spending extra sixes. You get to do more stuff. 
right? Yeah, it's almost like an exploding dice. So yeah, if you roll like six dice and you roll three sixes, you only need one six to succeed. Wow, three sixes. Okay, if you roll four sixes, <laughs> you only need one six to succeed. Uh, but then you can sort of spend the extra ones you got to have additional riders. And, and the, those are based on your skills. So in, for instance, the pilot has contact. If you get an extra six, you can gain a plus one modification to a later skill road, uh, roll relating to this one. You don't need to roll to overcome the exact same challenge in the future. You do it quickly in half the time it would normally take. You get a new or unexpected information. You hide your tracks or you show off. And showing off is kind of big in this game. That's <laughs> true. So the next, after you define your skills, you get uh, to look at your talents. And every talents are based on class. So, for instance, the pilot gets full career, throttle. Career, sir. It's a career. There are career. no classes. Jerk. <laughs> so, pilot gets uh, full throttle, which we talked about. You like to go fast, really fast. When it's piloting a space aircraft, you get a plus two modification to the pilot rolls. And that's generally what most of the uh, the talents do. They give you some sort of static benefit to rolls involving. And when they say plus two, it's not. Uh, sorry, it's not a static benefit. Those are extra dice. Yeah, they, that's what the plus two is. Yeah, so you get plus two extra dice if you're doing something a little bit more narrow and specific with a skill. Yeah, like the back of your hand is is a good example. This vehicle is yours. You know, every bolt, cable, nook, and cranny. Um, you choose one vehicle, not a type, but a single specific craft. And you get plus two modification to piloting with this chosen vehicle, which means that anytime you do a piloting check, you get two more dice. Yep, yep, yep. So you have the talents that are specific to your character class, and then you have a rather extensive list of general talents. Which you get basically by surviving adventures. You know, like it's experience points. That's that's things you do to improve your character. Yeah, and they, there's there's quite a long list here. And And then also your character has health. And your health is just equal to your strength score plus any talents that adjust it. And yeah, so, you know, you have, to, I think four, four or five is about the max you're going to hit with a, a starting character. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the, the dice pull mechanic, specifically stress. So if you, when we said push, what push means is you can reroll any dice that didn't come up six. But if you do that, you take a stress, you take one stress. And stress are represented by dice. You start rolling extra dice with your stuff, which is good in a way because if you roll sixes on stress dice, they count. They, they are fine. They are normal. But if you roll a one on a stress die, that's when your character has a chance to panic. And panic is bad. Panic is bad. Panic is Hudson screaming, game over, man. Game over. Yes. So um, if you do a panic test, there's a handy-dandy table on page 105. Uh, where you roll a d6, you add your current panic uh, or your current stress, I'm sorry, to the uh, to that result, and you consult the table, and that's what your character does. Uh, one through six says nothing happens, but they have stuff like you just sort of stand there and drop whatever you're holding, or you run screaming, <laughs> or, you know, there's a lot of, lot of things that can happen to your character. Now, what's cool is a lot of characters have a nascent ability to calm stress or calm people. Like, the officer calms... Uh, uh, colonial marines down if they're within a certain range things like that yeah yeah and there's a lot of ways to sort of piggyback on each other's successes and whatnot so which it, again is so neat because that's that's really bringing the group together and yeah. i really appreciate that yeah and it gives people reasons to take different careers even if you're playing in a colonial marines game it gives you a reason for somebody to be an officer <laughs> yep you get stress dice if you push a skill roll you go full auto on your weapon because if you're if you're blowing through your clip you you probably need it if you take damage, if you go without sleep, food, or water for a day, uh, if you perform a coup de gras, which I found was interesting, if you just murder a fool, 
<laughs> a scientist failing an analysis test, a member of your crew attacks you, which can happen if someone panics. A person is revealed to secretly be an android, which we didn't talk about, but yes, you can secretly be an android in this game too. And it gives you some cool benefits, but also you can't heal yourself because you have to get repaired because you're a robot. And then they have other, which can just come up. <laughs> like, you know, you see, an, you see a chest burster or something. That, that'll do it. It's nice because like Call of Cthulhu has kind of a bad thing where they you, you take sanity damage, you know, and you take sanity points and you gain like insanities. But like the insanities are kind of like bad takes on like what people think insanity is like movie insanity and not like real mental illness. And it just gets kind of weird. I like this because they don't make any bones about what it is. You are not these are this is not how real people necessarily behave. This is how movie people behave. This is how movie people behave and it just gives you a table and it just says like roll with it, which I think is better for what it's trying to emulate. Well, it's trying to be cinematic and and it's trying to emulate the movies and the way people are in the movies. So yeah, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. And I like that they did it this way because they don't they don't sit there and talk like you you get PTSD or you're stressed or you you have this real world thing. It's like no, you're you're a movie character. This just happens. The other thing that the book really nails right, there are basically three frameworks and two modes of play. The frameworks are real easy. They have one called Space Truckers, which is the crew from Aliens. <laughs> I, I like Alien. that one. Uh, there's the Colonial Marines, which is Aliens. And then they have um, the Frontier, which is, you don't see the Frontier in the movies, but like uh, the the original AVB comic, uh, it's modeling that. Yeah. Um, it's the people who are, all, it, like the people of Hadley's Hope. And then they also have two modes of play. One of them is campaign play, which is what you think it is. It's it's more long-term role-playing game, you know, where you're playing multiple sessions. And then they have one called cinti- cinematic. cinematic play. And that is basically a one-shot with pre-made characters. You go in with the idea that a lot of you are going to die because you are emulating a movie at that point. You're, you're not yeah. playing these characters and, and, and in the long term. And character death is expected in this game. Yes, especially in cinematic play. Cinematic play is almost more like a puzzle of how you survive the cinematic scenario <laughs> more than more than anything. They've got two cinematic play scenarios out. One of them's in the book, which you could probably play in a couple hours. Um, it takes place um, about a week or two before the Marines arrive in Aliens. So it's yeah, after a lot of the LD bad stuff is happening. Yeah. It's after a lot of the bad stuff has happened. You play like a crew that was out at like an outpost and you come back. And so like most every it, it's that last stand that they talk about. And they also have one called Chariot of the Gods, which uh, was part of their play test for the game. But it's its own thing now, which I have sitting right in front of me. That's what I just reached for. Yeah. And um, that is its own thing. Like you're, you're supposed to play that in one day, basically. And it, oddly, it's much more Prometheus focused, which I thought was an interesting take. One of the main things that I really like about this is the value presented by this book, because in the single volume, you it's it split darn near in half uh, with the first half being basically a player book and the second half being a GM book or as they call it in the game mother. Oh, yeah. The game mother, the game, <laughs> mother, yeah, which that. is brilliant. <laughs> it, you, you're, you'd be hard pressed to find a better value, especially when you take into consideration all of the lore that you get in this package. I mean, it is just chock full I don't know that I've ever seen a core book that, that sets up a world so effectively. If this doesn't win all of the Ennies this year, I don't know what will. It nailed it. it yeah, it's brilliant. Nailed it. It's brilliant in every way, shape, or form. It took a great system and a great property and made something special. Yeah, no, I, I, my mind was blown when I read it. Like, I, I haven't seen a licensed property handled this well because it's just 
enough that you could definitely build a campaign off of, but it's not so rigid that a lot of like licensed properties get where they just like lore dump you with like, no, not at all. It it encourages you to play within the boundaries of the universe, but it encourages you to play. Yeah. It's so good. Like I'm, I'm just so impressed with it. This, this is my, I'll go ahead and say it. I think this is my favorite RPG of the last 10 years. Wow. It is nothing short of remarkable in, in how balanced it is, how well put together it is, how well researched it is, and how, what, what, just what a beautiful, perfect package it all comes together in. I love the stress mechanic. I like how it forces the party to stick together in the way that, the same way that the movies do. I love that the characters are interacting with each other and that you have a buddy and you have a, a basically a, uh, arrival and that those things can change based on the story i think that the way they handle characters are no character is perfect they're all flawed both psychologically and from a character standpoint from a mechanical standpoint they're flawed and cannot rely on themselves they have to rely on others yeah and that is what alien is all about i think dracula dossier was better but this is this is definitely up there if, if we were saying top three i would say yeah definitely it's in my top three easily well, there you go. I mean, one way or another, you're, we're talking about top three. As a primer on how to deal with a licensed property in a role-playing game, like this oh my gosh. required reading. This, this is the blueprint. Yeah, yeah. Like, just, if you are thinking about making a licensed property into a role-playing game, this is what you pick up and just crib mercilessly off of. Yeah, yeah. If you buy the PDF of it, don't print it. You will blow up your printer printing all that black ink. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> That's no joke. There's a lot of black ink in there. <laughs> it's really pretty though the art's great too but yeah it's um sorry yeah yeah, we haven't even talked about the art the art is is stunning and and the other thing that i really like about it unlike a lot of other rpg books the art is all original it's all original and it's all stylized the same way yeah yeah it's like uh, it's cohesive that's the word i'm looking for yeah it's a cohesive package from start to finish not that there's anything wrong with having lots of artists work on a project but it just adds to the feeling of of it delivering this world to you. Right. And and that's the thing. Like so many games that are based off of licensed properties, they don't do that. They just take a bunch of stills from the movies and just like have it on the page, you know, as a way to set mood, like cinematic mood and book mood are very, very different things. And this book figured it out. Like, yeah, you got to set book mood and also probably not having to pay for all the, the image rights is probably a way to keep costs down. So good on them. But um, like, yeah, just just having art original art that fits the theme and exactly fits, you know, instead of like character creation where you just see a picture of Dallas and then that's all you could think of if you're being a space trucker or whatever, it gives you just kind of somebody who vaguely looks like Dallas, but it's not Dallas and it's in the style of all the other arts. So it's just, it, it, it kind of gets that this is a separate world. This, you are not playing the movies. You are sort of playing the alien RPG and it is a little bit different. It's, there's a division there, but it's, it's so good, Jonathan. Yeah, it, there's every, every aspect of this is just amazing. Yeah, they hit they hit everything on all cylinders in this game. It's impressive. If you if you haven't figured it out yet, this is a buy. One hundred percent, this is a buy. If you're an Alien fan, it's a buy. If you're an RPG fan, it's a buy. If you're a sci-fi fan, it's a buy. Agreed, completely agreed. If you're a human being that's breathing, it's a buy. Yeah, this is definitely on my short list of things to play. I I, I can only hope that the Altered Carbon book is this good. We will see. The Altered Carbon book comes with a fake cortical stack if you want to get one, which is fun. That's kind of neat, actually. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of good for that. 
<laughs> Damn it, I wish you hadn't told me that. Yeah, yeah, you can get it. It's one of the Kickstarter rewards. You should see the slipcase for the special edition. It's very cool. Anyway, Alien RPG from Free League Publishing. Like, get it yesterday. It's great. Yeah, it's a fantastic uh, bargain as well because you, you get the full player experience, the full GM experience. It's everything you need. I think that's it. All right. Enough said. Drop the mic. With that, that brings us to the end. Yet another episode of the Forgot My Dice podcast. Robert, closing thoughts, sir? I missed the Star Trek experience. That's where I yeah, went I after did I got too. married. You know, it came up the other day. I was talking to somebody about the Star Wars world in Orlando. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that got me thinking about how much I used to love going to Las Vegas and staying specifically in the Hilton so that I could go and hang out in Deep Space Nine. Yeah, yeah. That ride was great. Oh, man, that ride was so good. When when I got beamed up the first time, like, I broke. I broke. Like, I, I just bought it. I, I'm like, I'm on the Enterprise. I, I just, I, 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 my suspension of disbelief just went out the window. I was, I was just there. I, it was, it was one of the most pure moments of my entire life, Jonathan. <laughs> no, I'm with you. I'm with you. The same thing happened to me. Oh, I miss <sighs> the that. The 90s were a wonderful, beautiful time. That was in the 2000s, man. I guess it was the early 2000s, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I always wanted to get married on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise D, but it never happened. Gina and I talked about renewing our vows there. Re-up your vows, yeah. But now we can't. If that happens, I'm coming. (laughs) I know that that set, somebody bought it. It, It's somewhere in someone's garage now. I read about that. Contact them. (laughs) Let's make this happen. Let's renew our vows on the bridge of the Enterprise D. Yeah, we'll just call it a Forgot My Dice uh, reunion. Oh, snap, son. No, we got to wrap this up. A new episode of Picard hit today. I need to watch that. All right, there we go. <laughs> As always, there's only one thing left to do, Robert. Be excellent to one another and party on, Robert. Party on, Jonathan. Have you watched Picard yet? No, no. What's wrong I'm, with I'm you? I'm going to wait until it's done, and then I'm going to power through that and both Discovery seasons. <sighs> Fool. I'm already ponying up for Disney Plus. You bought that one time. <laughs> yeah, ponied. You seen the preview for WandaVision? Yeah, it looks really good. It looks really weird. I like it. All right. No, that, that's, why, that's, that's why I said it looks really good. <laughs> All right. I'm going to stop this one. And The music you heard in this podcast was intro by Elifiel. Additional music was provided by Brian Winkleman. Funding for the Forgot My Dice podcast was provided by our supporters on Patreon. Thank you 